This episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast is brought to you by Bronto Software, the leading email provider to the global internet retailer 1000. For more ideas on how to improve your marketing automation and to take your email to the next level, visit www.bronto.com resources. Think about the last time you bought flowers online. Was it a need-based or want-based purchase? Many retailers who sell mostly occasion-based products obsess over driving repeat customers while minimizing churn, but it can be a significant challenge for most. Companies who implement and evolve their segmentation and targeting tactics are the ones who have a greater likelihood of securing a future purchase. Welcome to the Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zachwitz. Today, we're going to talk about email marketing, segmentation, customer loyalty, and a slew of other things that we find interesting. To join me for the conversation today, I welcome to the show the director of CRM at the Books Company, Phil Irvine. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for being here. Yeah, definitely excited to talk about this topic. It's uh, an interesting space and an interesting time to see where this is going to be evolving. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for making the time. You know, so Phil, some may recognize the Books from the TV show The Shark Tank if they watched that from a couple seasons ago, but. For those that don't watch the show or don't remember, can you quickly set the stage for the audience about who the Books is, a little background about the company, and then a little background about yourself and your role over there as well? So we've, we're actually uh, going to be coming up on our six-year anniversary next week, but um, the Books is a pure e-commerce uh, floral and actually now a plant company in the uh, gifting space. And Really, the way that we tried ourselves from a lot of the big players out there, like Pro Flowers, 1-800-Flowers, is um, we try to really put a lot of time and attention into the quality and unique curations with our products. So, you know, one thing we try to lead with uniqueness with the way our various floral arrangements will have a mix of different types of flowers in the collections. And then we try to couple that with a really seamless and clean shopping experience. When the company was originally started, and one of our big differentiators was transparency with pricing. So as you came to the site and you saw one price for a collection, you you knew that that was the price you were going to pay when you checked out. We stayed away from any types of upsells um, throughout the flow. We originally didn't, ha- didn't charge for shipping or only handling type fees. We've now reversed that and charge for shipping. But outside of that, you know, the seamless shopping experience piece was a big differentiator for us as well. And then we, we also had this big connection with the majority of our flowers originally being sourced from Ecuador and being grown in a close proximity to a volcano. And so that kind of added to the perceived uniqueness of our arrangements as well, which helped the company to really accelerate its growth. And then as far as myself, I, as you mentioned, I'm the director of CRM here. So responsible for all outbound marketing, uh, customer touch points, as well as treatments on site as well. Um, a big thing we're getting into now is how to personalize and optimize experiences for different types of customers when they come to the site. And um, previously before being at the Books, I've been in the CRM, email marketing, digital marketing space for about six years. Started out actually working for an ESP, um, Experian Cheetah Mail, now known as uh, Cheetah Digital, and also spent some time in the uh, healthcare and fitness spaces at Allergan and uh, Beachbody. And uh, now at the Books, um, kind of manning the ship with running all of CRM, and it's been uh, it's been great so far. Very cool. You mentioned that you guys made a switch from free shipping to paid shipping. Were you there during the time they went from that that made that transition from free to paid? Yes, yes, I was. And 
I wasn't completely involved in every conversation there, but the the impetus for that was purely from a margin perspective. Sure. We did some extensive research on consumer behaviors and trying to understand if adding an incremental shipping charge would really change, you know, it causes big drop-offs in conversions and affinity towards the brands. And as we did market research, we really didn't think it would it would damage the brand that much. And because of just because of the the unit economics that we were seeing with how we had to acquire customers and the price the average price points with purchases within our business model, we we felt that it was it was necessary. You know, another part of the impetus too was so kind of similar to to the Amazon model that I'm sure the majority of your audience is familiar with. You know, when you sign up for Amazon Prime, you get unlimited free shipping for any products that you buy with Amazon. And with us, we actually offer two separate subscription products. And the only way now to get free shipping consistently on every delivery is to sign up for our subscription products. So part of the strategy there was to try to um, hopefully try to shift more of our customer base to sign up for our subscription products and take advantage of free shipping versus making a one-off e-commerce purchase where we do charge for shipping. So that that kind of collectively led to that that shift in uh, in strategy there. Yeah, very cool. Your subscription model is it a traditional subscription model like, hey, I want a bouquet of flowers a month to make my house smell and look good, or is it more along the lines of, hey, if I put in four, say, significant others or important people's dates you'll automatically send that say my wife for my wedding anniversary and for her birthday and then my mother for mother's day or is it more in the traditional lines of like a monthly or bi-monthly or quarterly type thing yeah that's it's funny you you teed up the question that way you must have been researching our product a little bit we actually offer both products so you know as you mentioned in the former we do offer a subscription where you can sign up on a uh, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or yearly cadence to send um, the same arrangement of flowers to a recipient of choice, including yourself. That's currently our more popular subscription product. And I, I think that's a function of it just being easily relatable to other subscription products that are out there in the, in the, in the gifting and even non-gifting space. But you know, the other product that you started to allude to, we actually call it the scheduler. And that allows you to preset dates and specific recipients to have flowers sent to their residences. And it's a really interesting product. And the way we structured it is that um, kind of like I mentioned earlier, it's consistent free delivery. And then we also offer a consistent discount with both products. And with the scheduler product, we, we also have unique collections and arrangements that are only available within that specific product. So oh, very cool. That's another, yeah, that's another angle that we're using as a hook to try to attract people to sign up for for that product and the other benefit too with some competitors out there you'll see that they only offer an option to pay up front for two three four five plus deliveries and we actually offer a pay-as-you-go option so it's not as big of an upfront commitment and hurdle to get people to sign up for the product so it's you know it's something we're still trying to figure out you know how that is going to be you know part of the mix within our entire business, but there, there's definitely an appetite to push more of our customers into those products because it translates into higher loyalty, repeat rates, and lifetime value ultimately for those customers. Absolutely. 
That's cool. So we're, I don't know, eight, nine minutes in already. We haven't talked about anything I alluded that we were going to talk about today. So this is typical for the Commerce Marketer podcast, I guess. So let's let's talk about some of the things I teed up before, segmentation uh, and things like that. So segmentation is not a new concept. It's not a new topic by any stretch of the imagination. Phil, you speak at a lot of conferences. I'm at a lot of conferences as well. I think every time you talk to a retailer, and you probably live this world now, it's one that they still struggle with. And although the tools are available for them to create segments, it's completely underutilized. And that could be due to just internal resources, right? I don't have enough manpower to, I always say I can create a hundred segments very easily, but I can't execute upon a hundred segments easily on a day-to-day basis. So you have those resources, you have some marketers who just have that overwhelming feeling of, I don't really know where to start. When you guys look internally, you know, how do you guys approach segmentation from an email standpoint today? And and can you briefly walk us through kind of the evolution of where you started from a segmentation side and then how you got to from from that point to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at the books and through my prior life, it, it's always been I don't, I don't want to say a struggle, but it, it is a constantly evolving process because you're never going to optimally come to a point where you say, yeah, we know exactly what segments we need to focus on to maximize value and, and revenue. But, you know, really it starts with, at the books, it started with, you know, what data are we capturing from our customers through our checkout flows when they make a purchase? And then, we have a preference center that is very, very in its early stages right now. But, you know, in my past life, it was often an exercise in understanding, you know, what data were we capturing through preference centers and then possibly surveys. And really, that was the starting point to figure out, you know, what exactly was available to us to even think about segmentation, putting in different creative variations, offer variations for our, our customer base. And at the books, when I first started, it was really basic and around segmentation with pure prospects. So we, about 60, 70% of our emails that we have in our database are pure leads. So people that register on the site um, just to opt into our email list versus actual customers who actually make purchases. So the vast majority of segmentation when I got here was, you know, how do we want to differentiate various offers for prospects versus leads with the, the, the thought that with prospects, you have to go to the market with higher offers since they haven't bought yet versus customers. They hopefully are already loyal and you can try to market your product without having a discount so much to get them the repeat buy. But what we, you know, how we've evolved is a big benefit for us is we made an investment in Custora which is a customer analytics platform that it basically acts as a centralized hub supporting all customer data, transactional history, demographic data, and even campaign engagement data. And with that, it's spun out a variety of personas, predictive analytics. And with us, the really the biggest things in the floral and gifting industry are who are the recipients that you're buying for most frequently? What flowers do you have an affinity to buy for? And then, and then what occasions are you naturally buying for? So the way that we've evolved primarily has been through the lens of those three types of cohorts. And now we try to align different messaging and different creatives along the lines of those specific cohorts. The one more segmentation uh, component that's a big part of our strategy now as well is we do align heavily with our acquisition team and we look at 
the sources of media that they're invested in to bring in traffic into the database. And a big win for us with just scaling customers has been through partnership types of offers and deals. And to give you an example, a big win for us was uh, during Valentine's Day, we partnered with Fandango. And the way we structured an offer for their customer base was when this was at the time when Black Panther was just coming out and was released. And it was, you know, it was a huge blockbuster. I think they did 500, 600 million worldwide. And what we teed up was as people bought tickets through their platform for Black Panther, we would tee up an offer to essentially buy a free bouquet with us with an added shipping charge. And so kind of what we saw was that was one of the most effective ways that we could really scale and drive orders to meet our forecasts and demand for with that, given that we're having this shift with more of our customers coming in through that channel, it's led to us to think about, you know, how do we maybe need to differentiate messaging or offers to that type of customer versus others that may have come in through other digital channels, you know, direct, maybe they found us through a Google search, maybe they were part of our prospecting onboarding series, um, maybe they came in through a paid social ad. So that's one of the big pieces that we're thinking through of how to evolve our segmentation right now as well. I want to follow up. You, you mentioned a few things. I'm jotting notes over here that I want to follow up on. One, you mentioned preference centers at the very beginning of the answer and in former life. So you mentioned Beachbody you used to work for. I'm, I'm assuming preference centers were probably big there because that was certainly a very personal thing, right? How to look better and feel better and things like that. From your standpoint, I know you said you're still early stages, but if you circle back to like your future, your former life, have you found preference centers to be adopted by consumers? Because the reason I ask is when I used to do client consulting, I used to find about maybe 8 to 15% of people would actually fill out preference forms. And you're kind of left with this other 85%. Now, it's 15% more than I had before, but tastes also evolve. Have you found those to be effective and highly utilized in the past? Or is the the plan in place that you guys have that you're working for more of a streamlined preference center with like, Hey, maybe these, these are the types of flowers I like capture those specific dates. What's your kind of your stance on preference centers as far as utilization from customers? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting question. I think when I was at Beachbody, yes, we did. We, we had, we had preference centers and then we also had other touch points where we tried to collect preferences around so types of workouts that people preferred and the way we kind of framed it was that just really simply were people more extreme athletes where they uh, preferred workouts with uh, trainers like Sean T or Tony Horton P90X and Insanity where they're you know are their big brands versus non-extreme athletes which uh, you know those programs were things like yogis or things of that nature. And then we also tried to tee up input around the, what types of supplements consumers may or may not like, like protein shakes, performance type supplements, you know, uh, like powders to provide more energy or things of that nature. In that instance, we, to your point, we saw a really low response rate. And when we actually tested the input of that data with how to personalize content and campaigns to customers we ultimately what we found was customers bought products that were lower priced than other options even if they told us that they preferred a higher priced either fitness program or supplemental program so 
in that case, to your point, it wasn't that effective. But when I did work at Allergan, so Allergan, um, to, to provide some context, it was their facial aesthetics division. Their flagship product was Botox, but they also sold facial fillers, skincare products, eyelash products and whatnot. And there, we also had a preference center where upfront, as people registered, we provided them with a, an initial coupon for their first treatment. And then we had a flow where we would ask them, you know, which product or products were they interested in. And there we saw very high response rates and, and utilization rates. And I think, you know, my hypothesis is with in that space, you know, average order values were somewhere in the range of 300 to $450. So, you know, it was a big investment for a customer with, a, you know, with actually getting a treatment in that space. And so I think that was an impetus to why there was a higher utilization and, and usage of a preference center and why it was more effective from an outbound marketing perspective as well. Because we, you know, there we tied personalized communications and creative based off of input and data that customers submitted to us. Circling back to the books, I think, you know, we're, we're looking at it through a couple of different ways. We, we do see data collection as a really large piece in our forward-looking strategy. You know, part of it is kind of what I mentioned before, collecting more information about recipient preferences, flower preferences, and occasion preferences. The biggest thing for, for us, though, is, is collecting key dates and moments. Once you have a customer that buys a flower one time, it could have been for a one-off occasion. It could have been for a peak season that we have, Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. But then in the non-peak seasons, it's a huge challenge because you really don't know what important dates and moments that somebody would have a reason to even buy flowers for. So that's a big part of our strategy is how do we collect these key dates? And so we're thinking about it, potentially spinning that up at a preference center. But, you know, one thing we're also testing now is putting it as part of our checkout flow. Basically, the concept of, you know, while you're shopping and close to getting to the finish line, we're going to start teeing up options to allow customers to submit dates so that we can act as like a reminder service uh, for future occasions. So so that's kind of how we're looking at it now from a forward-looking perspective. I think it makes a ton of sense to collect dates for companies like any sort of occasional gifting companies, but I think more retailers should do that as well, right? So if I'm buying, it's Q4 and I'm buying a gift for, say, my wife, if I chose your company as a gift for this occasion, there's no reason I wouldn't buy them a gift for, say, birthdays or whatever else. So I think more companies should do that as well. You also mentioned in the previous answer about segmenting on types of flowers and the strategy might not be completely baked out but you might be able to provide a little context here if you go with the approach of hey here's greg and he, he's bought flowers from us three times and he bought roses one time and he bought say i don't know tulips one time and whatever another uh, carnations or something but it's because maybe my wife likes roses my you know, my niece got carnations because she, you know, graduated eighth grade or something. And then my mother likes tulips and it was Mother's Day. Have you guys thought through trying to isolate and identify specific occasions with type of flowers? Because I, I would imagine that'd be extremely challenging to be like, hey, you know, give me a segment of everyone who bought roses. We're going to target them. And, you know, maybe I bought roses as a one-off, but I'm always buying tulips the other time. Is that pose a challenge for you? Do you guys think about that and be like, hey, you know, or do you have a, a solution already kind of in place for that? 
Yeah, that's so it's interesting you mentioned that because we like to speak through things in the, the peak versus non-peak seasons. And and to your point, if you think about Valentine's Day, the majority of your customers during that time, they're buying for their girlfriends or wives. And roses are the the the, the flower that's mostly tied to Valentine's Day. It, it elicits, um, you know, a, a romant, romanticism with your significant other and whatnot. So what's interesting, though, is that, you know, during that season, more, more people than not are buying roses. So you would think personalization isn't that important during that time and season. But we actually ran tests where we, you know, we basically screened in the faces of customers that we knew bought roses more often than not in the past. And we actually saw a lot of incremental lift if we just reinforced to the customers to continue to buy roses during that specific period. It was interesting. We, you know, we tested this out with email treatments and actually landing page treatments as well, where we, we would kind of carry images of roses and then copy that also spoke to buying roses um, through kind of the entire digital experience. And we actually saw big wins there. And then similarly with Mother's Day, Mother's Day is a little, it's a little trickier. It So tulips is a more popular flower during Mother's Day. So we typically lead with that, with a lot of our communications and our strategy. But the other, you know, the other big component and in, in with us, and I would ma- imagine with competitors as well, is a lot of what you're leading with from a product perspective is also, you know, what's what's available from an inventory perspective and year where we're bringing to the market um, new flowers, new curated collections, you know, new new options for the customer. So it's definitely a balance of trying to personalize uh, marketing and creative based off of past data, but then it's also balancing that with introducing new collections and new arrangements because a lot of times, you know, what's new and fresh is going to attract more eyeballs than, you know, someone's preferences in the past. I would just kind of, you know, kind of end with really what we see is that this concept of personalizing flower preferences, it's a little more effective in non-peak seasons because, you know, once you get past uh, May and Mother's Day, People are primarily buying for birthdays, anniversaries, potentially for weddings. A big thing with me, I'm not the greatest husband, so a lot of times... Don't say that, Phil. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole category of I'm sorry flowers, and so that's that's another big, big reason that people buy as well. So it, it really is more effective, I think, in a non-peak season to to personalize, you know, preferences like flower types and recipients there versus the the peak seasons where it's a little more apparent. So. Can you send me a link to those I'm sorry flowers? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm not going to say it's the most popular, but we definitely get a lot of uh, site visits <laughs> to that, that collection for sure. <laughs> so you've mentioned peak seasons a couple of times. We're recording this in, in Q4. So most people are focused on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas, Hanukkah, kind of that year-end season. I've got to imagine that Valentine's Day Mother's Day are probably the two busiest holidays for you. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So do you guys change your segmentation approach when it comes to marketing around those times? I know you mentioned the example of kind of a minute ago about screaming roses in people's faces who purchased roses in the past, but do you guys do anything unique during, from your segmentation stamp uh, strategy during the Valentine's Mother's Day periods? Yeah, definitely. So Because there's just an audience that is so much more higher intent during Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, we 
you know, I, I like to say we throw all dart, we, we throw all darts at the dartboard to see which one's going to hit the bullseye to drive the most revenue and the most orders. You know, it's, it's interesting. The, the lion's share of orders for the holiday periods will come in two weeks prior to the holiday up all the way up until the holiday. So during that, I would say during that two weeks up until the actual holiday, we don't really do a whole lot with segmentation because the the audience is so high intent that if we just simply throw out kind of the same generic creative with maybe a small offer, we can we can see success with driving traffic and orders and whatnot. But recipient preferences isn't isn't too big of too big of an importance because um, during Valentine's Day you're buying for your significant other, during Mother's Day you're buying for your mom for the most part. But we do a lot of activities around different offer strategies. So a big part of our recent uh, change in, in strategy was we defined a quote-unquote VIP audience. So customers that have bought with it, mostly it's it's defined more on a transactional basis. They've, they've just bought more from us in the past. And so with that cohort, we try to do things like give them advanced access to new collections as they're launched. We give them offers, but you know we try to you know we try to not be as judicious with offers because they're so much more higher intent and have been so much more loyal. We try to do other things like within this past season, we within an email we allowed them to save the date on their calendar through a widget that we inserted within the email to help them just keep tabs of the holidays. So we try to differentiate the experience with VIPs through through that lens, and then. With the rest of our customers, we we try to do kind of interesting things. We, you know, last year we spun up an interactive poll where as we launched a new collection, we asked customers to vote on what their favorite collection was. And then based off of that vote, we retargeted them with follow-up emails and promotions to try to get them to buy the flower that they voted for. And then within that, that other cohort as well. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but we we have various offers in place now. So if we knew that you bought from a past uh, partnership offer, we with Fandango we try to mimic that type of offer structure to get you to repeat buy versus others that maybe came in through direct traffic or through our prospect series. We may not be at judicious with with offers, so. We do a lot of uh, a testing from from that perspective as well to try to personalize different experiences and you know different messaging that we go to the market with. You know, ultimately, it's 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 really it's it's such an aggressive time period for you know us and other competitors in the floral space that we're we're constantly trying to create these one to one connections. But it's it's really fascinating because we look at numbers on a a daily and even hourly basis, and then we're constantly looking at you know, what additional levers can we pull to try to meet our forecast and demand? And with us in CRM, it's not just sending more email. It's thinking about, you know, how can we tweak creative and copy to be more personalized? And then as a last resort, you know, we look to see what we can do with with increasing offers if we happen to be behind with forecast. How do you guys determine if you do who your best customers are? Because you have subscription models, you have single purchases, what kind of KPIs do you guys typically look at? And you guys are obviously numbers obsessed. Um, are you guys looking at just purchases, dollars spent, recurring purchases? Uh, is there another KPI in there? How do you guys define who your quote unquote best customers are? Yeah, as of right now, it's it's mostly transactional based. But 
one of the benefits we have with using the Castora platform is that it's actually a predictive um, lifetime value that we use to define our VIP audience. And we basically look at the top 25% in terms of highest predicted lifetime value. And essentially what, what Castora is doing is it's looking at all of our customers, where they are in their life cycle. And then it's, it's essentially comparing them to more tenured customers to see if they're exhibiting similar behaviors. And then based off of that, it's putting them into different value tiers to come up with a predicted lifetime value. And so that's what we've, been, we've used thus far to define this VIP audience. Uh, but you know, having said that, we do also think about how to treat our subscription customers differently. You know, honestly, in a, in a lot of these cases, we, you know, unless it's a peak season, we try to have separate streams and cadences for our customers that are on our subscription, both of our subscription products. So I think it, it's, it's definitely um, something we, we, we've teed up and thought about, you know, how can we maybe have a broader, or I shouldn't say broader, but a definition of VIPs that incorporates more actions and engagements. But, you know, for now, what we're kind of running with is this concept of a predictive LTV versus a lot of retailers I've seen that look at more historical spend to define their VIP audience. You mentioned Castora a couple of times, just full disclosure, Castora is a Bronto partner as well. So just shameless plug for them, they get some free airtime out of the whole deal here. So we love them over there. I kind of want to follow up on this a little bit because we talk about customer loyalty and, you know, it means a lot of different things to different people. You know, consumers are today mostly disloyal, I would say in, in the grand scheme of things. You guys are in a unique position because you have subscription models and things like that, but you're also in a position where I'm assuming you have a lot of customers that just occasionally buy. It's a sympathy bouquet. It's a congratulations. That's not always consistent. It's not always predictable. You, just, you never really know when people die. So as opposed to asking you, you, you said you're using these predictive models from Castora. As opposed to asking you how you use these to target, say, your best customers, I want to take it from the other angle and you say, say Castora comes up with this and says, hey, this segment here is most likely to be your one and done's. It's, you know, Greg buying flowers because to say congratulations and he's probably not coming back. Do you guys currently have an approach to target the less likely to come back people to try to get them to come back? Or is that something that's maybe in the works for you? Or do you just kind of disband them all together and be like, hey, you know what, we've seen that. Greg is kind of not coming back, so let's just kick him to the wayside, send him some periodic emails and hope to get something. Do you guys have a, a specific focus on those people who are more likely to churn? Yeah, as you alluded to, it, it is the nature of the beast. A lot of our customers that we attract, they need to buy a gift for you know one of our peak seasons and they, they, you know, they, they find us through one of our advertising means and they fulfill a need at that point in time, but it's just the nature of the beast. They're not necessarily going to be brand loyalists for us. So yeah, um, the way we approach it is we defined a a three month rule. So we look at an email engagement primarily. If you, if you haven't engaged, and when I say engaged, uh, opened or clicked an email, if you haven't engaged in three months, we kind of bucket you into our triggered life cycle um, types of campaigns. So at that point in time where you're not engaged, we, you know, we, we get less aggressive with how we market to you, but then we'll trigger out um, a series of, of campaigns at different life cycle stages. Um, so we, 
again, uh, kind of another shameless plug for Castora, but they have predictors for different stages of your likeliness to churn. And then ultimately, if you happen to be lost. So we have a couple of touch points from from that perspective where honestly, in a lot of these cases, we're, we're trying to guess what types of uh, occasions you have coming up. But we we speak to our most popular non-peak occasions like birthdays, anniversaries, and then a big thing we're trying to push now is uh, home decor. So we're trying to trying to capitalize on people that may want to buy flowers or plants too for for homes, for for parties, or just other aesthetic reasons. But then the other big part of the strategy is, you know, while we do have you engaged, we you know we're trying to collect these key dates so that we can actually have meaningful reasons to market and promote to you um, when you are disengaged. So that really is the big low-hanging fruit and the big objective in this industry is, is how can we figure out, yeah, what are those occasions that you need to buy flowers for and then market aggressively towards those specific occasions to get you to come back and hopefully uh, turn you into a loyal customer. You answered a couple of my next questions here, which is perfect because I do less talking that way. So thanks for that, Phil. <laughs> you mentioned lifecycle messaging for the people who you know, are, are deemed or haven't opened in three months or clicked in three months. Let's look holistically from uh, automation standpoint. What do you guys have currently automating? Do you guys have a welcome series or a welcome message automating out to people? Yeah. Yeah. We do have a differentiated, if you, if you just registered and you're a pure prospect, we have a separate kind of welcome series versus if you bought and you're a customer. So we have a welcome series. We have a a 30-day anniversary triggered message. We have a series of churn prevention life cycle series, and then we have a uh, we have a two-part email series. If it's been essentially uh, 12 months since you made a purchase, and then kind of layered within that, um, for people that we do have key dates for, mostly with, with birthdays and anniversaries, we have automated life cycle messaging around um, getting those customers to buy for those same dates the following year. So we, we do have, we do have a lot of lifecycle messaging in place. I think the, I think there's a ton of opportunity for us to become even a little more personalized and potentially layering in um, some of this other preference data points that I talked to with our promotional campaigns. Um, I think we see that as a big opportunity for us right now. Very cool. Yeah. Bronto can do that for you. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, who's calling you, Phil? Oh, you know, that was, um, that was actually, it was an calendar reminder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I love it. Reminder, yeah. <laughs> do you guys have any sort of, I know you, you mentioned the 12 months after if they haven't made a purchase, do you guys have any post-purchase automations going on for brand new customers or recent purchasers? Do you have any automation in that? Yes, yeah, so we do have a, um, we have a welcome series for post-purchasers and within that, you know, a lot of those guys were introducing them to the brand, telling them about the brand story, the volcano component that I mentioned earlier. But then, you know, with that group, we, you know, we're trying to, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky because our ultimate goal is we want to try to upsell them into one of our subscription products. But it's tricky in this space because the person receiving the benefit is actually the recipient, not necessarily the purchaser. So we try to time our aggressiveness with upsells into our subscription products when the recip after the recipient receives their flowers. So that's something that's kind of a nuance in in our space versus when I was at Beachbody, once you bought a fitness DVD, you know, you can get instant gratification of using the program and working out. So we were aggressive with upselling you toward the 
the Beachbody on demand online streaming subscription uh, model there. So that's one of the tra- the um, the nuances in this industry. And then we also have a refer a friend program. So that's a that's something that we're also trying to push with our new customers as well. Quick question about employee count. When you look at your email, you guys have a lot of automated messages going. You guys are doing stuff with with segmentation. How many dedicated people to email marketing do you guys have internally? Yeah, we only really have two. Or I, I lead a team of two, so we're extremely lean. You know, I got to, you know, definitely have to mention our creative and design team. We have two designers and two copywriters that they support the uh, the entire company, but they're great partners that we work with. But um, but yeah, we only have two people right now currently dedicated toward email marketing. So you got two email marketers, you've got two copywriters and two creative people? Uh, yes, yes. So that's pretty good. This is the one thing if, you, if you're listening and like most people, you have very slim teams, which you typically find with retailers. All these lifecycle messages are absolutely doable. So reach out to Phil if you have questions about how the heck he did it. That's really good to have that much automated with with this kind of, I don't want to say skeleton crew because it it diminishes them, but you know, a low head count there. So good job. Customer acquisition and retention. You mentioned some of these things here, but you had mentioned very early on, and I want to circle back to that, is different channels, right? Because you guys did the partnership with Fandango. You guys are probably using, I'm assuming, social media to draw people in paid search, different channels from that standpoint. How do how do you guys view these channels overlapping and working together? Because, you know, you have the ability to, hey, one, we pay to acquire a customer via whatever channel it is. Now, are we overly discounting via the email channel because they came in through social to get them to purchase through email when they haven't purchased through email yet? And then you start paying to acquire a customer you've already acquired. How are you guys balancing your different digital outlets and your digital strategies with one another. Yeah, yeah, this is this is definitely a discussion that I I get excited about because I think there's just tons of opportunity and I you know, I, I network a lot with startup type e-commerce companies especially in the, in the LA area where I'm located here and there's often a a philosophy that paid media should just be used to acquire customers and then once you you know you you iron out what your your CAC your cost per new customer is or customer acquisition cost is once you establish that you solely should only rely on email to retain them because you know email there's there's an, it's essentially a sunk cost you know you sign a upfront agreement on an allotted amount of set volume for email sends but the shift in philosophy that we're we're talking about now and I think where we're starting to go with the books is the concept of Looking at now that we've established these different value tiers of customers and we can differentiate who, what customers are predicted to be more valuable than others. If we understand that, we can look at the unit economics of that compared to the CAC that's used to acquire them. And then what's the window of additional dollars that we can allot towards certain customers to get them to repeat buy? Because, you know, optimally we would, we could have a, a strategy where we're sending people emails. If they don't open email, we'd send them Facebook ads, display ads, potentially even direct mail. And conceptually, the more touch points, the higher likelihood you're going to get them to convert and, and buy. But I think it's a, it's a balance of this lifetime value to CAC ratio where, you know, what is this, this middle ground area to play with from a paid media perspective to to get customers to repeat buy. And, you know, one thing we're actually investing in and looking into is actually direct mail. 
you know, we've seen some success with it in the past, especially with um, birthdays and anniversaries, those types of occasions, we've seen it be very effective. And so that's actually something that we're, we're definitely looking at. I think, you know, you alluded to the point earlier about with customers that were acquired through partnerships. In those scenarios, we in the, historically, we've been, we've been able to work out those deals where there isn't necessarily, I shouldn't say there isn't, there's a smaller CAC involved with acquiring those customers because we've been able to work out agreements with those partners to insert our ads into their flows. They consider it kind of a value add for, for them as well. So with those customers, you know, CAC is very small, but at the same time, they're, they're receiving a heavy discount when they first become customers. So the way that we look at that is it gives us a lot more flexibility with the level of discounting we can surface to them to get them to, to repeat buy. So I, you know, that's kind of a long weighted answer to say it's, it's definitely evolving for us, but those are, those are two kind of scenarios that we're looking at and how we think about multi-channel to apply to retain existing customers. It's a really good answer though. And I think the one underlying premise there is you've got to understand your numbers in some fashion, right? You've got to understand your cost for customer acquisition. You've got to understand your, you know, your RP for emails. You've got to understand your whatever kind of KPI you want to use for paid search or whatever. If you don't have that, it's going to be impossible for you to figure out how you should be treating these different people across uh, cross channel. You mentioned direct mail, which is really interesting to me because one I'm going to be doing a podcast on this sometime soon because it, it keeps coming up in people with people I talk to, whether it's a retailer or a consultant. You know, I get more direct mail now than I've gotten probably in the last, definitely that I got last year and completely more than I got two years ago. It seems like it's one of these uh, bell bottoms coming back to trend. Are you getting more direct mail? Do you find yourself responding to it better just personally? Because I, I do. I find myself looking at it more now and I find myself actually responding to it much more now than I did you know, say two years ago. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely seeing the same thing. I think, you know, that what, what what's being talked about a lot is obviously not just with email, but with all digital kind of outbound touch points. There's, I mean, there's just so much content out there that it, it becomes harder and harder to stand out from the crowd. And so I think that's an impetus for a lot of retailers and other, you know, other companies that, that may be e-commerce focused, they're, they're looking to direct mail as an avenue to help to distinguish themselves. You know, I, at, when I was at Beachbody, they were built on being a direct response fitness company. And so traditionally, you know, they, they heavily relied on digital and then also infomercials was a big part of their acquisition strategy. But with them, the thing that constantly kind of came up was direct mail. Let's look at it as a direct response channel to drive orders, but it also is a great branding piece to establish maybe components about your brand that aren't as easy to relay through a digital communication and touch points. So I think that's starting to come up again now that I'm at the books that we're looking at. Or obviously, number one, direct mail as a, as a means to drive orders and revenue, but also a way that we can put pieces together to help to continue to establish the brand and reinforce some of the main the main key brand principles as well. I think a good way to end before we get to some more fun stuff here is if you could give one piece of segmenting advice to the audience listening, what would that one piece of advice be? I, you know, from what I've, from just um, personal experience, I think the biggest thing is uh, segmentation is great. It, it conceptually, everybody wants to get to this place of of trying to have one-to-one communications with every single customer and 
getting to a point where you can talk to their specific needs and their specific wants with each touch point. But I think the biggest thing is to always look at the balance between level of effort versus actual impact. I constantly kind of talk about an example here. You know, we we, we could get into location-based segmentation and we do have some things here at the books, but if you only have, you know, three customers in Wyoming, is it actually going to have a, a true impact if you personalize a specific piece of content um, towards that that specific demo? You know, in some industries, if your average order values are a thousand or two thousand dollars an order, it may make sense. But with with us, it uh, you know that in that scenario, it wouldn't. When you compare that to the incremental effort it would take for a design team to spin up uh, a creative. For that variation, so I think that's the big that's the biggest thing that I've I've learned through past experience um, that I would you know submit to the the audience as well. Phil, what's an email marketing pet peeve of yours? Um, that's a good question. I think I am I'm I'm so much more of a data driven marketer versus the classic kind of creative marketer. I I think the biggest thing that I get hung up with is if hours and hours are spent going back and forth about like a color scheme in a creative or if you have maybe two copy variations that to me say the same thing, but (laughs) someone, you know, a a person may have a strong opinion about one, one way or the other. I, I constantly just go back to, is there data that justifies a strong opinion here and there? And I think that's ultimately it is if there's a strong opinion about why not to go to market with a certain concept or certain creative. Like why, why are we spending time to have that discussion? So I, I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. I've seen those things nitpicked to unbelievable amounts. And it's, I mean, it could be to your point, like the exclamations red versus green. They're like, ah, we need to change it. What do you think about this? Let's do this. It takes three hours to get one of those things out. It is unbelievable. So I'm right there with you. Phil, you got a few minutes to stick around for more lighthearted questions with me. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Definitely. Excellent. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes. I, because it's in between two pieces of, of bread, I would call it a sandwich. Does it matter that the, the bun is connected at all to you? To me, it doesn't. No. no. All right. Fair enough. What's in your pockets right now? Like if you take everything out of your pockets, what do you have in there? I have my, um, my cell phone. I have my house keys and I have my key card to get into the, the, the office. Uh, I know, not not the greatest answer, but yeah, I'm kind of boring in that respect. <laughs> yeah, that's an answer. What kind of dog do you have? I have a Shih Tzu, actually, and you you may have heard her barking in the background just now. <laughs> yeah, that's why I asked. All right. How old? Uh, 38 years old. Oh, no, no, not you. The dog. Oh, I was, <laughs> was going to say, is that dog yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, the dog's uh, dog 10. Okay. She acts like she's five, but she's 10, though. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Give it a guilty pleasure. Is TV show, music, anything like that? I hate to admit it, but... So two things. Um, I hate to admit it. I'm a big fan of TGIT on ABC. So how to get away with murder. And then I was a big fan of scandal in the past. And then uh, I actually, for some reason, I can get hooked on watching Lifetime movies for some reason. My wife makes fun of me for that all the time, but I, I get addicted to watching those movies in the drama. The Lifetime movies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you cry at them? I actually, I don't cry. No. So I, okay. you know, I, I, I don't go that far, but yeah. So I don't watch the Lifetime movies, but a little known fact about me is I cry at almost everything. So I could be watching like a car commercial and there's like a kid that's somewhat sad. I'll be like, oh, and I start bawling. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> I have no sympathy for people either. It's, it's really funny how that works. Yeah. All right, how about a, a go-to karaoke song? I would say um, uh, go-to karaoke song. 
California love, uh, Tupac. Okay, very cool. All right, I'm going to set a timer for you, Phil. Name as many types of flowers as you can in 15 seconds. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Roses, lilies, peonies, ranunculus, astronaria, um, tulips. Daisies. Uh, you got five. Okay. <laughs> I hope that doesn't get you fired. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this guy does not know our product catalog. That's a tough one. I get about three of them. So, Phil, any questions for me today? No, no. I think this was uh, this was a lot of fun. Definitely, definitely. So, Phil, we'll have info in the episode description on how to contact you, the books, things like that. If someone does want to reach out, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, the name is, I, I believe I'm under Phil Irvine. And then on Twitter, you can find me at nd bruin 09 so if you want to uh, tweet me or find me on linkedin those are probably the best uh, avenues to get in touch and would love to connect with anybody interested in discussing this more awesome phil irvine director of crm at books.com and that is b-o-u-q-s.com short for bouquets thanks for your time today phil to those listening especially our listener of the week michael from houston he may or may not be my brother just letting you know if you want to be the listener of the week let me know you're tuned in and if you're interested in telling your e-commerce story or email marketing story i'd love to hear from you as well hope you enjoyed the episode until next time have a great day and be kind to one another peace